Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From his undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It is the 2nd of October, Year of Our Lord, 2017. And this is a rebroadcast of a previously broadcasted broadcast, which makes absolutely no sense. Um, I did this in the beginning of the podcast. It will be low quality, mono, kind of shitty. But it was a general question I had. Why does the left hate America? And I researched all the way back to the Cold War, how they do really hate America. And I thought it was well worth rebroadcasting for those new podcast listeners since I was dark for this week. Um, I'm actually recording this on the 28th, which was the last time I released a podcast. Um, I hope you enjoy it. It's worth the listen. Um, it was, once again, when I was just starting the podcast, so it's got a lot less bells and whistles and crazy stuff, but it's worth a listen, and I hope you all, once again, tune in for Big Sis and her podcast on the 8th of October, Eurolord, 2017. Enjoy. Uh, this is by David Horowitz. I made it a whole segment because there's so much to put into it. Plus, I have a bunch of uh, sound bites I'm going to flip in. Some of them are very long. But it's always been something I've always thought. I think the left, being that I was a soldier, being that I did, I was a cold warrior or whatever the hell they called us, um, and I fought in Afghanistan, you know, they never were on our side. I remember sitting in Afghanistan, and there were there were comments from Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid that it was already a quagmire, and uh, I had just got there. It's like January, February of 2002, folks. Um, and you know, with Iraq, the whole way, the media, and specifically the left, being the leadership, fought against us was just to me criminal. But if you look back in time, it was always that way. There was always the anti-war crowd, the nuclear crowd. There's always been the left fighting against us and fighting against, as we learned in the first segment, or we didn't learn, but we talked about in the first segment, um, capitalism are very core, everything core about us, from a, a one nation under God, et cetera, et cetera. They are not part of that concept. They want a different country. And I think this article just totally nails it because I truly believe they aren't on our side anymore. So... Uh, National Review, is the left even on America's side anymore? David Horowitz, this is from January 8, 2016, is when it was published. The progressives have undermined American society and damaged race relations. The Bolshevik leader, Leon Trotsky, one described Stalinism as the perfect theory for gluing up the brain. To the progressives seduced by Stalinism, democratic America represented a greater evil than the barbaric police state of the Soviet bloc. Even a half century later, progressive culture still refers to the formative phase of the Cold War as the Red Scare. As though the fifth column of American progressives, whose loyalties were to the Soviet enemy, whose numbers included Soviet spies, was not a matter of serious concern. And as though a nuclear-armed, rapacious Soviet empire did not pose a credible threat. Hence the gluing of the brain. 
The Soviet Union is gone and history has moved on, but the Stalin apologist dynamic endures as the heritage of the post-communist left, which remains wedded to the fantasies of an impossibly beautiful future that collides with the flawed American past. The left is now the dominant force of the American Democratic Party. Its extreme disconnect from realities is encapsulated in the support for the transparency, transparently racist movie, movement called Black Lives Matter, which attacks law enforcement and defends street predators, excusing their crimes with the alibi that white supremacists created the circumstances that make some commit criminal acts. This extremist movement has a strong support of the entire spectrum of the progressive left, including 46% of the Democratic Party, according to Wall Street Journal NBC News poll. Black Lives Matter is a movement built on the fiction that police have declared open season on innocent black Americans. Black Lives Matter is a movement built on the fiction that police have declared open season on innocent black Americans. According to progressive fictions, police are the agents of white supremacist society, a claim alone that should make one wary of the sanity of those who advance it. The facts belie the very basis of the claim that African Americans are being indiscriminately gunned down by police. Black Lives Matter promotes the lie, invented by Brown's robbery accomplices, that Brown had his hands up and was attempting to surrender when he was shot. Hands up, don't shoot quickly became the anthem of the movement. But this lie was refudiated not only by black eyewitnesses testifying before the grand jury convened for the case and by forensic evidence, but they, by the review conducted by former Attorney General Eric Holder's Justice Department. Otherwise bent on demonstrating an exist, existence of bigotry in Ferguson Police Department. Meanwhile, protesters went about setting fire to Ferguson, causing millions of dollars of damage. Because if there was no justice, no hanging for Wilson, there would be no peace, as a now familiar mob slogan framed it. BLM then set about taking its crusade to other cities, most prominently to Baltimore, where a career criminal named Freddie Gray became another cause celeb. Gray had suffered fatal injuries inside a police van where only another captive was present. As the black BLM-inspired mobs began to gather in protest, Baltimore black Democratic mayor ordered police to stand down and lend them to destroy millions of dollars in prosperity. The state's black Democratic prosecutor then indicted six police officers, three of them African-American, on various ludicrous charges, including first-degree murder. The immediate result of BLM's war on law enforcement was an epidemic of crime as police officers decided that ag aggressive law enforcement was dangerous to their lives and careers. Homicides in Ferguson area <clears throat> in Baltimore jumped 60%. Virtually all the victims were black, revealing the hypocrisy of the movement for which blacks' li lives didn't really matter. Attacks on law enforcement and on the power structure did. How could any reasonable citizen, let alone one with progressive aspirations, support a roving lynch mob like the one in Ferguson? How could half the Democratic Party support a movement that condemns America as a white supremacist society, disregarding the reality that the president and the chief law enforcement officer and thousands of civil servants and elected officials, including the mayors and police chiefs of large urban centers such as Memphis, Tennessee, Atlanta, and Philadelphia, are black, and of course Detroit, 40 years? One can embrace the absurdity that America is a white supremacist society only if afflicted with the illusion that all statistical inequalities affect African Americans, like a high crime rate, are not reflections of culture and character, but marks of racist oppression. And he notes some statistics, um, and it's pretty int interesting. Universal, as it among American progressives, 
and the current U.S. Department of Justice is easily refuted. If statistical disparities proved racism, the National Basketball Association, which is 95% of the starting multimillionaires are black, would be an association controlled by black racists, as would the National Football League, while the National Hockey League would be under the thumb of white racists. And I thought that was a good analogy because I never thought of that argument, but it is true. I mean, if you look at football, you look at basketball, you look at music, it's all African American, so if we're a racist society, how is that really possible? And by the way, if you hear a bunch of rough rousing or behind me, I have two hybrid wolves, and they're jackasses. And they won't leave me alone today, so they're running around the house, because I'm downstairs in the basement. I'm trying to keep them out. They're kennel trained. And uh, there's only so much time I can put them outside, but they're just being uh, what they usually are, wolves. And they're just tearing shit up. So please ignore it. Uh, there's nothing I can do. Progressives, going along with the article, are delusional about black racism and black crime because they are enthralled to the vision of imaginary progressive future in which social justice will guarantee that every individual outcome is the same. The left is blind to the responsibility of inner city populations for their off-the-chart violent crime rates. The left is blind to the responsibility of inner city populations for their off off-the-charts violent crime rates. The failure to embrace the responsibilities of parenthood is a characteristic of progressive attitudes as it is blindness to the betrayal of inner-city communities by Democrats. Responsible almost entirely for the disgraceful conditions of American cities, Chicago, Detroit, Baltimore, St. Louis, and a number of other centers of out-of-control black poverty, failed public school, syst school systems, and black-on-black -black violence are 100% controlled by the Democratic Party, and have been so for 50 to 100 years. Yet 95% of the black vote and 100% of the progressive vote continues to go to Democrats who oppress African Americans. Everything that's true, we've covered it. And it's, it's, it's being run by Democrats. And once again, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to dog Democrats. This is their shtick. We've, we've talked about it every episode. I'm probably beating a dead horse. It's hard not to hit it during election season because it keeps coming up, article after article after article, and so does BLM. But when you really break it down, it's the media that is not covering this. It's the media that's not saying, hey, whoa, 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 time out, Flint. Everybody was black. How is that racist? How can Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton say that it was a racist white governor that did it? But they don't. So in the next part of his beautiful theses, I, I think, of how the left is not on our side, he's going to go into the Iraq War stuff. So before then, I did this nice composite of Iraq War protesters. And then I have an interesting article to put in the center of this that is talking about how today, because of what Democrats need and how they are stuck on it's all George Bush's fault, and that's how they got elected in 2012. That's how they, they still go to that crutch. So it's always George Bush. But the Iraq War is still plaguing us in the 2016 election. So we're going to play this soundbite. It's a little long, but there's a lot to play, folks, of the crazy shit that these people said, and it was all progressive left, about our country when we were going to war in Iraq. And then we'll couple the article about how the 2016 race is still stuck on the 20, on uh, Iraq war. And then he has a beautiful part on it. So to the soundbite. Not in our names. Not in our names. The institutions of the British state had set out to tell lies. The biggest demonstration coordinated in the history of the whole earth. It was off the hook. Something began on that day that cannot be reversed. Amen. Beautiful movement that's gonna stop them 
from dropping those. This bastard is actually going to take us to war. Easy the American people do not want this. It was over. Back up! Back up! Back up! Our victory, not theirs. War criminal! War criminal! Arrest this man! These were lies. They could take their medals back. solution or in war you know like if you're looking for peace you're not going to do it with the war and I don't know um, asking why we think the US is going to war um, I think I can say more along the lines of that are the justifications that we're given now are not truthful that fear has been hyped up that um Bush doesn't necessarily care about the plight of Iraqis. You know, I feel like that stuff is very much a, a lie. And um, for you know, just for that reason alone, I can say we should not be going in there. That there, there's something that our government has a different interest, you know, than, than uh, human rights. Than really getting Saddam out of there because he's an evil man. Um, you know, I don't, I can't, I can't. I don't know all of the answers. I don't think any of us really know exactly why, but we know that we're, we've been fed a load of crap, essentially. So. Is our president's a complete fucking moron? That's it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really just about uh, just about money and making uh, making sure that uh, that uh, the people and the powers that be have uh, have profit I think really that's that's what that's the that's the way things have been going since the since the industrial revolution and this is kind of where we're at now it's just oh, just rampant capitalism what the real reason uh, well I think the real reason is not to get Saddam Hussein this more behind this. Um, I think it is part of the part of the plan of a certain group of people in Washington to get control of the world. So that's why I'm here out here today. To say no. It's not to liberate the people. 
it's not you cannot do liberation in this way to drop bombs on the innocent people. So oh, okay. Did you have the answers that I could give you? That's easy. Yes. Power. The real reason is power. The real reason is oil. The real reason is uh, a, a twisted idea of what this world is supposed to be about. You know, these people have taken power. It's really a coup, and uh, and this is what we have as a result. They're they're really an insane. Uh, uh, disadvantaged, challenged group of people that by a serious error have gotten into power and, uh, and now we're all suffering the consequences. He's in establishing power and kind of think that's what, what we're up to here as a nation is establishing power over the, you know, the free world. Iraq is, uh, is second only to Saudi Arabia in oil and uh, if the U.S. controls Iraq's oil, it gives the U.S. 10 years or 20 years of, uh, of an edge on, on Europe and on China. And um, Oil. America's wor- uh, America's tr- America trying to get, gain world domination. Power. Empire. <laughs> went, went to Iraq because he wants the oil. He wants to kill all the people, all the innocent people. So that's why he went. And I think the uh, the reason that the uh, U.S. has gone to war is for the political gain of the President of the United States and uh, to demonstrate that the American Empire will prevail no matter where it goes and what it does. But right now, we're killing innocent people, even though Iraq is no threat to the United States. It's no threat even to its neighbors. It had nothing to do with 9-11. This whole connection with 9-11 is a scam. And uh, we need to see what it is. We could be spending this money on schools, on hospitals, on health care, instead of on bonds. Think, I mean, we can say it's about oil, and we can say it's about masculinity, and we can say it's about imperialism, but it's really about an entire convergence of a lot of different structural things that, that have been going on in the U.S. for a long time and about world power. So it's, it's hard. To, you can't just simplify it to the quick answer, I don't think, you know. Dependence of those countries, but um, this moment in particular is, is relevant because seen that the control that the U.S. government had over Iraq has slipped away. And in order to reassert that control, which is important for strategic reasons, that often when people say it's about oil, it is and it isn't. It is, the United States, it's true, doesn't need those oil sources. But European and Japanese trading partners need those oil wells, need the, the oil that comes out of those wells. And so as a strategic move, it's important to maintain control of those oil wells. And also as a launching point into Central Asia, which is a direction the U.S. wants to go. Oil and hegemony, hegemony more than anything else. 
uh, imperial domination by the United States of all planets and subjugation of all of uh, the majority of the population, except for the ruling class. Okay, I know that was kind of long. It's eight and a half minutes, but there's just so much out there. I mean, there's they're just shrines to the Iraq War because lefties love protesting. They just love protesting. And some of it I never heard. I mean, some of the reasons they believed and the chance for George Bush, I'd heard some of that, but some of these people are just moon-back crazy. Uh, they believe in the Illuminati and, and shame on them. Um, but it's a good pre... You know, pre, it's kind of a nice intro to getting to the next section of his article. So to the article is... Is I got this from um, Mediaite, and it's how um, the war in Iraq is haunting the 2016 presidential election. More than a de- I'm sorry, by Ann Guerin and Ed O'Keefe. I want to make sure I keep the authors uh, identified. More than a decade later, the war in Iraq is still haunting those who supported it, especially those running for president. In the Democratic contest, Senator Bernie Sanders in Vermont has pried open the door on Hillary Clinton's 2002 vote in support of the war. Despite her public apology for a vote she now says was a mistake, Sanders has said repeatedly that he got the vote right and she did not. On the Republican side, businessman Donald Trump is going after several of the of his rivals for their support of former President George W. Bush. Decision to lead the nation into war. Trump's top target, Bush's brother, former Flutter, Florida Governor Jeb Bush. I'm sorry, I'm having some reading issues today. Years after President Obama... Closed down the war and brought American ground forces home. Iraq remains unfinished business, both as an ongoing national security concern, thanks to Obama, and an open political question that the two parties answer differently. The ISIS terrorist syndicate was born out of Iraq's political and security vacuum. The country is still unstable, despite billions in U.S. support. Much of the current debate among Democrats and Republicans looks ahead to the question of what has the better plan to confront that threat. But a surprising amount of the discussion in recent days has also looked back to whether the war was justified and whether U.S. power was misused. Clinton tried to expunge the record that helped sink her first White House campaign nearly a year before she launched her second. She apologized for voting to approve the war in Iraq, called it a mistake, and sought to close the door on what it seemed a long-ago controversy. Sanders now touts his 2002 floor speech against the war as a prescient moment when he spoke about how an invasion of Iraq could lead to destabilizing the Middle East for years to come. Sanders was then a member of the House. Clinton was a senator representing New York. For Clinton, Iraq shadows her central argument that she has the experience and acumen to make this right call on risky and consequential questions. She frequently tells audience that among all the candidates running this year, she alone has sat in the White House Situation Room deciding matters of war and peace. This is Clinton speaking. I do not believe a vote in 2002 is a plan to defeat ISIS in 2016. Clinton said Thursday during the most recent Democratic debate, referring to Islamic State. Her campaign and the Correct the Record Super PAC supporting her have also asserted that Sanders has little or nothing else to talk about given his lack of foreign policy experience. Less clear is the impact of Trump's words. Trump has said that he first opposed the Iraq invasion in 2003, but no evidence has surfaced to support his claim. Nonetheless, he's kept an 
up a drumbeat against George W. Bush foreign policy that appeared timed to coincide with the former president's appearance Monday on the campaign trail on behalf of his brother. The attacks began at last Saturday's GOP debate in Greenville, South Carolina, and continued Monday, as if Trump were trying to guarantee that Jeb Bush does not reap the wards of his brother's support without getting mired in a public discussion of Iraq. Trump held the news conference hour ahead of the Bush, Bush event and told reporters that George W. Bush was partly to blame for terrorist attack on September. September 11, 2001. Excuse me, Trump said. The World Trade Center came down during the reign of George Bush, right? It came down. We weren't safe. Now, for the Democrats, as I said before, we listened to the nice, long crazies out there banging their bongos and the article. They are wrapped up in this. This is their modus operandi. This is what they do. They protest. And they work against America's interest. To the Trump comment, that is utter bullshit. All right? I I am by no means a George W. Bush supporter. Do I think he was a good president? Yes. Do I think his second term was jacked up? Yes. Do I think he should have fired Rumsfeld? Hells to the fuck. Yeah. He should have been fired. I think he was a douche. He had bad people around him, and he didn't make the decisions. But the president to be blamed for not getting OBL is actually Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, folks, had three chances at him. He didn't do anything because he looked at terrorism as a law enforcement problem, not a national security problem. So everything had to go through a law enforcement angle, and thus we did nothing. So if any president is to be blamed for what happened, it is Clinton. My stance has always been nobody's to be to blame. If it wasn't September 11th and it wasn't the World Trade Center, eventually you know, Al-Qaeda was going to hit us. Just like right now, ISIS is going to hit us. ISIS is going to hit us more because Obama's doing nothing about it. But George Bush, after September 11th, acted accordingly and put boot to ass. Not going to relegate the war in Iraq. Not even going to talk about it in depth of right and wrong. I'm going to read his article and cover what the left did against it. But the fact of the matter is, he kept us safe. There weren't all these attacks, lone wolf, all this other bullshit that's happening in our country right now. It's happening... Because nobody fears us because Obama's a pussy. I can say that. I won't get fired from my podcast. All right, back to his article, and this is where it really hits the protesting side of the progressives. Unfortunately, progressives' sordid history of supporting criminals at home is accompanied by an equally dishonorable record of sympathy for America's enemies abroad. The Iraqi dictator, Saddam Hussein, was one of the monsters of the 20th century, launching two aggressive wars, dropping poison gas on the Kurdish minority, and murdering 300,000 Iraqi citizens. But when America proposed opposing him, more than a million progressives poured in the street in protest. At first, the Democratic leadership supported the Iraq invasion as a just and necessary war. But three months later, with American men and women still in harm's way and under pressure from the progressive left, they turned against the very war they had voted to authorize and for the next five years conducted a malicious propaganda campaign worthy of the enemy to discredit America's intentions and to obscure our military mission. That article's dead on, folks. Dead the fuck on. Go back to Mirtha, I talked about it. Go back to everything they did for every spending budget, everything that was ever done. They were working against us. They were calling soldiers killers. They were basically a PR leg for Iraq through the whole damn war. Because they saw an opportunity when the WMDs weren't found to make it into political capital. And they did. They won back 
the Senate, they won back the House, and they won the presidency, using that as their leverage to make the Republicans look like the devil. But anybody who's sane and objectively wants to look at it, both parties led us to the Iraq War. Bill Clinton laid the foundation for it because he did many resolutions, including the Iraqi Liberation Act, and he bombed the living shit out of tents all over the desert of Iraq. Every time he got in trouble, he bombed some. Nobody cared then. Back to the article. The Democrats' portrayal of the country war effort crippled its progress, and with the election of the president of an anti-war leftist in 2008, led directly to the explosion of terrorism and bloodshed that has since engulfed the Middle East. But it wasn't just the surrender mentality of the Obama administration that fueled these catastrophes. With the full support of the Democratic Party, President Obama embraced the Muslim Brotherhood and America's moral and America's mortal enemy, Iran, providing its ayatollahs with a path to nuclear weapons and dominance of the region, causing Sunni Arab states to prepare for a Middle Eastern civil war. Just as leftists act as a propagandist for the Soviet Empire, discrediting America's Cold War effort and conducting deceptive campaigns to hide Soviet crimes, so the left today disparages the Islamic threat and opposes the security measures necessary to protect the homeland. Most alarmingly, the ceiling of our southern border Order. Progressives have created sedition sanctuary cities, which refuse to cooperate with homeland security and the immigration laws in more than 300 outlaw municipalities under Democratic control. This betrayal has gone unreversed for years and led to the needless death of numerous American citizens at the hands of illegal alien criminals of which there are more than 200,000 in our jails alone, and obviously many more inside our borders. Leftists and Democrats have also joined the Islamic propaganda campaign to represent Muslims, whose co-religionists have killed hundreds of thousands of innocents since 9-11 in the name of their religion. As victims of anti-Muslim prejudice, denouncing critics of Islamic terror and proponents of security measures as Islamophobes and bigots. But in the truth, 60% of religious hate crimes are directed at Jews, with a small minority directed at Muslims. Exploiting the myth of Muslim persecution, progressives oppose scrutiny of the Muslim community, including terror-promoting imams and mosques. They immediately denounce proposals to screen Muslim immigrants as religious bigotry and thus close off any rational discussion of the problem. Led by Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, Democrats have enabled the Islamic assault on free speech, which is a central component of the Islamist campaign to create a worldwide religious theocracy. Most notoriously, the president and his operatives cynically spread the lie that an obscure Internet video about Muhammad was behind the Benghazi terror attacks. Speaking like an ayatollah before the U.N. General Assembly shortly after the attack, Obama declared the future must not belong to those who slander the prophet of Islam. What an American president should have said is, the future must not belong to those who murder in the name of Islam. Our country it is, is at a perilous crossroad, one that is made immeasurably more dangerous by a national party that blames its own country for the crimes of its enemies, and by a political opposition too feckless and timid to hold its fellow citizens accountable for their unconscionable acts. Wow. That article, in my mind, sums up the legacy that really is where we are as a country. I mean, the left does all he says. None of this can be refuted. It's just a fact. If you look through the history of our country, when we've had an enemy, the left defends it. Whether it be Islam Islamists, 
that we have now, whether it be the Cold War, whether it be Soviets, whether it be communism, they've always sided with the enemy. And I've said that out loud, because every time something comes up, it just seems like there's this outcry over why would you say that and the media is part of it i cannot remember how i mean i can't even count how many times i've watched meet the press which i'll watch tomorrow and i'll put it in uh, episode 12 um <clears throat> i don't know how many times i have outright seen um chuck todd just defend it and call people crazy he banned me because i said you're sounding like an islamist sympathizer and he blocked me off twitter because he's a pussy that's what he does. That's what they do. They have the three Ds down, and they use it every time, specifically in the case of, of Islamic Jihad. They're first going to demean you for saying anything. They're going to deflect the situation as not being anything to do with them hating America, and then they're going to deny there is ever a problem. They're going to do that every time. In every case, watch what a a liberal does when confronted with the horrors that are going on to the world. I mean, why do you think we don't see the beheadings? Why do you think we don't see all the horrors that you could just do a Google search or a YouTube search and see? LiveLink is full of the crazy shit ISIS is doing over there, and you've never seen it on your TV. Never. Because they're not, they don't want you to know. They don't see it as a problem because it goes against their mantra that it's really just the conservatives. It's just conservatives, it's the George Bush war hawks that are seeing the world as an evil place, but everybody just wants to get together and hold hands and sing kumbaya motherfucking all. And that is not the case. So every time they're going to do that. I mean, why do you think Islamophobia is a word that we all know now? We know it because the left has used it at nauseum to quell the conversation. Shut it down. There isn't a problem. It's you. You're an Islamophobe. And to hammer it home and close this segment, I found this as an article that was based on um, what Salon put out about Scalia. And so I searched, what did Salon put out at the death of OBL? And I'm just going to read a short synopsis of each one to show you that now Salon represents the left, the progressive left. That is our whole site. They are the ugly, ugly liberal that is out there walking the streets of America. They subscribe to everything that Mr. Horowitz's article talked about, everything I played for the war protesters, everything is encapsulated on their website. You just got to go look at it. So Twitchy encapsulated it perfectly with a tweet that led you to two articles that covered it, what they said about OBL and what they said about Scalia. So I'm going to read it. This was from Friday, May 6, 2011, on their site. The Osama bin Laden exception. Does a terrorist singular evil mean it doesn't matter what took place? By Glenn Greenwald. And if any of you have seen Glenn Greenwald on TV, you probably wanted to punch him in the face, like I do, because he's just a troll. When I first wrote about bin Laden killing on Monday, I suggested that these the intense and understandable emotion response to this being dead, his being dead, would almost certainly drown out any discussion of the legality, ethics, or precedents created by this event. 
That, I think, has largely been borne out, at least in the U.S. One poll shows that 86% of Americans, 86% of Americans favor the killing, though that's hardly universal. A poll in Germany finds 64 of you that this had no reason to rejoice, while 52 believe an attempt should have been made to arrest him. Many European newspapers have harshly criticized U.S. actions, and German Prime Minister Angela Merkel's declaration of happiness over bin Laden's death provoked widespread criticism even in our own party. Now, I must pause and show you once again, that's the liberal mind. It's what the world thinks. We need to be like the world because America is a fucked up place. That he even looked up that poll makes me just want to throat punch him. Just throat punch him. Figuratively, not literally, because violence is bad. Violence is evil, and I could get arrested. But at the end of the day, a figurative throat punch is in order. So back to his article. I expected and fully understand that many people view of the Bidlon killing is shaped first and foremost by happiness over his death. But what has surprised me somewhat is how little interest there seems to be in finding out what actually happened here. We know very little about the circumstances of Bin Laden's killing, because the U.S. government has issued so many contradictory claims, which in turn contradict the reported claims of those at the scene. When I wrote about this on Monday, I said that the, US of, the use of force would be justified if, as the U.S. government claimed, he was violently resisting his capture. But that turned out to be totally false. It's now beyond dispute that Bin Laden was unarmed when killed and there was virtually no violent resistance in the house. Still, the range of possibilities for what actually happened is vast. Everything, everything from he was lunging for his AK-47 to he was already captured when shot in front of his family to the order from the start was to kill, not capture him. And I personally don't see how it's possible to assess the justifiability or legality of what took place without knowingly without knowing which of those are true. So in that article, he's basically saying, it's not this great thing. Now, what are the legalities? Can we really do that? He killed him in front of his family. The world doesn't like us now. Oh, my God. But then you fast forward to Thursday, February 18th, at 2016, and this article is by Katie Helper, and in defense of grave dancing, it's true that Scalia was a human being, but I still refuse to mourn a-holes like him politely. That's our article heading. That, that's the title of her article. When a public figure we love dies, we're expected to observe a certain level of decorum. Here's why that's wrong. Like many people, I found out about death of Anto Antonin Scalia through social media, a Facebook chat to be specific. Dude, Scalia may be dead, my friend messaged me. After a few minutes of silence, my friend returned in all caps, once again, to proclaim, he's dead, with about 4,000 exclamation points. While Scalia's unexpected death provoked a pseudo-constitutional crisis among the right wing, it provoked an existential crisis, existential crisis in me. I felt simultaneously happy, relieved, hopeful, and guilty. He's someone's father, someone's husband, RBG's bestie, and opera partner. Even more than what I felt was that what I wanted to do. Oh my God, I typed to my friend. Would a list of Scalia's worst quotes be the worst? Ironically enough, my friend's verdict was Scalian. Swift 
punishing and punctuated with hyperbole and exclamation points. No, you must do it. Fuck decorum. A woman of checks and balances, I sought counsel from other sources via other means of communication. I Skyped an editor to ask for her ruling on the issue. Her judgment was Kennedyan and moderate. She urged me to wait 24 hours, reminding me that dancing on people's graves was not good. When I texted another friend, a journalist, he concurred with the editor, writing, I wouldn't celebrate it. The majority, it seemed, had ruled. It would be in poor taste and bad judgment an ethical breach to openly rejoice about Scalia's death. I had no grounds for appeal. The decision was final, or so it seemed. But then I felt a flickering of hope as I saw a flickering of light from my cell phone. With bated breath, I watched as dots of iMessage judgment popped up on my screen. The journalist, it seemed, had finished his ruling. He thought I could make the argument that his death may have saved the planet, with the court now unlikely to strike down Obama's far-reaching emissions plan. He was a bigot who made millions of people suffer. With this... With this Briarsian an analysis, my friend granted my peace, which gave it a last-minute reprieve. I decided I'd nudge, if not totally violate decorum. I compiled some of the last late justice most memorable quotes. I can't say I'm proud of my word choice. The cop-out est of adjectives memorable allowed me a convenient vagueness. But in all fairness, Scalia. Equal Opportunity Bigotry made it hard to come up with a headline-length title that did him any justice. Scalia's most homophobic and our sexist and our racist and our savage decision quotes are, or off-the-cuff statements is a mouthful. The guilt I felt over turning Scalia's death into a shareable content started to dissipate as I started through the bottomless pit of sexism, homophobia, and racism that was his le- legacy. She goes on and on and on. And just dogs this man. And this is from her editor. This is from her paper. This is what the left is like. So to juxtapose those two things, when OBL gets whacked, a man that killed and was the head of an organization that had killed so many people that it lives on to this day within ISIS... They're worried about the legality and what the world will think of us because we went out and killed him. But when a Supreme Court justice that doesn't look at the same, you know, look at the world with the same lenses they do dies, they're grave dancing. It goes in line with the entire meme of this segment. I unequivocally, with no reservation, know the left, the true progressive, not your run-of-the-mill Democrat, not your one-cause-only Democrat. The real progressives that run that party have never, from birth, been on America's side. They hate America. They hate everything about America, and that is why their politics, that is why their entire platform for the 2016 presidential election is about changing America forever. Obama, as we will see, if Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders get elected, was just the Pied Piper that got all the rats moving. He is just one little part of this puzzle. 
They will finish the plan. And by the end of it, we will no longer be America. We'll be just another fucked up country that spends all their time worrying about not making people upset. And we'll be overtaken by a jihadist and we'll be in debt forever. This segment has depressed me beyond anything I can ever say. I just hate, 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 hate the far left. Hate them! To a music break and to news and social media nuggets. Stop. Oh 
Welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast with Tony Reed. Will they renounce the comments and return the money? Why don't you ask them? Now we're going to go into this Charles, it's Charles Cook, I think that's his name, yeah, Charles Cook, um, it's not the other one, I think it's, uh, let me go back to the heading, sorry, I got every once in a while I still get confused with these 55 monitor things, because I'm old school, it's not good, yeah, it's a Charles C. Cook, I think, it's not the Cook Report guy, it's a different guy, I just want to make sure that's, that's understood who wrote this, um, but it's it's a theme I've been talking about since I've been doing this podcast because it's quite obvious that the doggone media or the media and the left have just you know they, they demean everybody. It doesn't matter. And as people have said over and over and tried to articulate, and this is how the same it went on Morning Joe. Well, Trump is such a bad guy, but rightly so for the first time. In this election cycle, um, Mr. Scarborough stated it doesn't matter. There was Hitler references to fucking Romney. There was all sorts of fucked up shit. It's every four years we as Americans know the media and the left, because the left's out of ideas, are going to spend their time demeaning the Republican. So his article... Democrats have run out of language to use against Republicans was published on the 2nd. And it goes a little something like this. Yesterday, President Obama gave a semi-panic, you really have to vote against Trump guy speech in Raleigh, North Carolina. Watching it, I was struck by a couple of things. First, by how effortlessly Obama rewrites history on the fly. Second, the Democrats really have limited their ability to credibly warn against the dangers possessed by Trump. During his address, Obama said this, I've got Republican friends who don't think or act the way Donald Trump does. This is somebody who's uniquely unqualified. I ran against John McCain. I ran against Mitt Romney. I thought I'd be a better president. But I thought that the Republican was at risk, the Republic was at risk if they were elected. Really? Obama thought Romney was a normal Republican? And I played the soundbite because I heard it. It was being touted all over the news as a reason why you shouldn't vote for fucking Trump. It was their catchphrase because they were told to do that by Obama. And so they did. He's their handler. To the article, because that's not how I came across at the time. It's boring to observe the Republicans suddenly become respectable when they lose or disappear or die. But it's indisputably true. Perhaps now Obama likes Romney, but at the time when Romney was actually a threat to him, he was wishing aloud that the outre, 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 I don't know how to say that, it's French, it's gay, I'm not saying it. Romney fellow could be more like that reasonable John McCain. Here's Glenn Thrush from 2012. Obama really doesn't like, admire, or even grudgingly respect Romney. It's a level of contempt, say AIDS, he doesn't even feel for the conservative, combative House Majority Leader Eric Cantor, the Hill Republican he dislikes the most. 
There was a baseline of respect for John McCain. The president always thought he was an honorable man and a war hero. A long-time Obama advisor said, that doesn't hold true for Romney. He was no goddamn war hero. To recap then, Romney was dangerous and represented a departure then. He was no John McCain, that's for sure. Now, pa. Romney was a gentleman, a scholar, a safe pair of hands. Sure, in 2012, Obama ran a commercial arguing that Romney wasn't one of us. Sure, Obama was worried about Romney being in the White House that he tried to impose restraints on the drone program that he had run without restrictions. Sure, Joe Biden said that Romney would put African Americans back in chains. Do we remember that, folks? Sure, Harry Reid accused Romney of being a tax cheat and a scoundrel. Sure, Obama's campaigners repeatedly claimed that if Romney were elected, he would continue his dastardly spree of killing people with cancer. Sure, the Atlantic characterized Obama's approach towards Romney as being my opponent as a dangerous radical with a dash of my opponent as a strange weirdo thrown in. But in retrospect, he was fine. In fact, he was no threat at all. Chill. That I agree with some of Obama's criticism of Trump is frankly beside the point. Yes, Donald Trump is indeed unlike other Republicans. Yes, Trump is indeed un uniquely unqualified for the presidency. But when this game is played every single time, regardless of the merits of the candidate in question, the charge becomes hollow. I was mortified last night to watch Hillary Clinton anti-Trump advertisement and to acknowledge that almost every claim in it was true. Once again, I thought, this is the man the right nominated? But fair as the charges against Trump so often are, I couldn't help but think that I'd been watching similar accusations leveled against Republican choice, regardless of who he or she was. Donald Trump is bad, a bad man. But when a fine man such as Mitt Romney is given the Hitler treatment too, it becomes difficult for that message to resonate. As has been observed by men smarter than I, crying wolf has its drawbacks. Which brings me to my second observation. Just like the right, the Democratic Party has exhausted the supply of effective political language. I have already conceded Donald Trump really is different, and at least among fair-minded Democrats, the charges that are leveled against him are substantially different than those that are leveled against, say, Marco Rubio. But, and this is key, the language that is used to convey those different arguments is eerily similar. The progressive and general case against Trump is that he has said terrible things about women, minorities, and that he has indulged the most retrograde fractions within American polity. The progressive case against Rubio is that he opposes Obamacare, is staunchly pro-life, and has an economic vision that is closer to Paul Ryan's than to, say, Barack Obama. On the face of it, these are dramatically different briefs, but when filtered through the progressive language filter, they tend to be rendered identically. Thus, it is that both Rubio and Trump are accused of hating women. Trump because he has said he has done terrible things to them. Rubio because he wants to just fund Planned Parenthood. Thus, it is that both Rubio and Trump are accused of racism. Trump becomes because he has attacked judges on the basis of their ethnicity and said ugly things about minorities. Rubio, because he's for good reasons, opposed federal programs that disproportionately seek to help minorities. Thus, it is that both Rubio and Trump are accused of caring little for the poor. Trump, because he has a history of shafting his contractors. Rubio, because he advocates limited government. Again, I am not for a moment suggesting that honest progressives believe in their heart that Trump and Rubio are the same person. But when both direct flaws and perceived flaws are explained the same way, women-hating, poor-destroying racists, it becomes difficult for listeners to do anything but tune out. A similar, similar problem obtained with the use of Jim Crow described even the most modest of voting law alterations.
As is often the case, C.S. Lewis saw this coming writing in 1956 letter, Don't use words too big for the subject. Don't say infinity when you mean very. Otherwise, you'll have no words left when you want to talk about something really infinite. I'll let that sit for a while. Because it's very true. Watching Obama yesterday, I was struck by how limited were his options and are the options of those who make an even more explicit case against Trump. Effectively, Obama has reduced to saying, and I really mean it this time. Time will tell how effective this will be proved to be. Either way, just as the right might want to consider how often apocalyptic language sounded to suburban families and to swing voters, Democrats might take a good look at themselves next time around. When the rhetoric used to describe Donald Trump and Mitt Romney is indistinguishable to all but the most tuned in, something has gone seriously wrong in the culture. Folks, he nails it. He nails it. And it goes back to 2000. Ever since 2000, folks, the moment the Supreme Court elected to not allow the recount, the New York Times, every major paper did a post-op and found he did win, folks. Gore didn't win. I don't care what Michael Moore tells you. The left has lost their ability to have any class. They are classless. And you will say, well, Joe Wilson said you lie. Saying you lie and saying you Hitler, you're Hitler, are two different things, my friends. It's not even the same ballpark. In May 2012, Democrats' resume not, excuse me, God, I cannot read today. Democrats resume Nazi GOP comparison. Ryan like Hitler. Yesterday, a California Democrat likened Paul Ryan to Nazi Joseph Goebbels. Today, a top Kansas Democrat likened Ryan to Hitler. That was 2012. Paul Ryan. Hitler. Hitler. So what did, what did they do in 2012? It's, it's pretty, pretty easy. In fact, I'm going to go back to 20, 2000. This was posted during the Bush presidency, okay? This was posted. This is what NBC posted during the Bush presidency. And tell me if this whole Trump is the devil is anything new. If you're a single mother with two children, which is the toughest job in America as far as I'm concerned, and you're working hard to put food on your family, those who think that they can say, we're only going to have a stimulus package, but let's forget tax relief, misunderestimate, or excuse me, underestimate. <laughs> Just making sure you're paying attention. <laughs> you were. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. The responses have got to end in order for us to get the, the, the framework, the groundwork, not framework, the groundwork to discuss a framework for peace, to lay the... All right. 
We are not at war with Muslims. We don't have a beef with Muslims. We want to be friends with Muslims and Muslim children. We're fighting evil people. It's important for the boys and girls of Thurgood Marshall to know that we're fighting evil with good. And one way to fight evil with good is you can help by writing letters to boys and girls your age. And so, in my State of the my State of the Union or State my speech to the nation, that was called Bushism. It went on for ten minutes. Of course, I edited it down. And to go to the article, here are some ads from 2012. Stay with me, because then we're going to go into the role model ad and an article on the three massive problems with Hillary Clinton's new anti-Trump ad. But here are the two ones they're talking about. One, The first one is going to be the ad for the pro-PAC, Obama for America, or Organizing for America, because they had to change it after he got elected the first time. Whatever that fucking squirrely, money laundering, illegal front that David Brock runs that's now called something else and he's illegally fucking up this whole goddamn election. Illegally, once again, because it's against the FEC rules. This is the one where Romney is killing people with cancer, followed by Paul Ryan throws Granny off the cliff. I don't think Mitt Romney understands what he's done to people's lives by closing the plant. I don't think he realizes that, that people's lives completely changed. When Mitt Romney and Bain closed the plant, I lost my health care. And my family lost their health care. And uh, uh, a short time after that, my wife became ill. I don't know how long she was sick. Uh, and I think maybe she didn't say anything because she knew that we, we couldn't afford the insurance. And, and then one day she, she uh, became ill, and, and I took her up to the Jackson County Hospital and, and, and admitted her for pneumonia, and that's when they found the cancer. And by then it was stage four. It was, it was, there was nothing they could do for her. And she passed away in 22 days. I do not think Mitt Romney realizes what he's done to anyone. And I, furthermore, I do not think Mitt Romney is concerned. Priorities USA Action is responsible for the content of this advertising.
been going on forever. And I met, I, I want to just pause before we go into the you know last part of the segment and, and break down this role model video. Folks, think about that for a second. I want you just to think. That's how the left has won two consecutive elections. They have pandered and told you that they're the only ones that care about you. They are in tune with what African Americans and Latinos are feeling. They have lied that they're going to give you affordable health care, which it isn't actually working. Nothing good about it is that the pre-existing conditions are gone. They have spent all their time demonizing whoever stands. I don't give a fuck. You could put Gandhi up there as a Republican. They're going to demean him. They're going to sensationalize. And people will say, well, Tony, both sides do it, and Republicans call them un-American, and during Bush's time, they said they work for the terrorists, and blah, 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 blah. Let's do a Google search on Hitler. The references just to Republicans about Hitler have been going on forever. Brown shirts. I read you articles on this show. For those who are new, go back. The attack on Trump. How him and his brown shirts make a American great hat-wearing Americans are all a bunch of goddamn Nazis. That was the inference. That was the inference. But they've been doing it. That's all they do. You don't see Hillary Clinton ads that are saying what she's going to do for America. She just shows Trump stuff. And this is the one that the media loves. It's such an impactful commercial. It is so awesome. It's grounded in his own words. And this is the kind of presidency you're going to see out of Donald Trump. So this is called Role Models. For those that haven't seen it, I'm going to play it. I love the old days. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. And you can tell them to go themselves. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. When Mexico sends its people, they're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. You know, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes. Uh, blood coming out of her, wherever. You gotta see this guy. Ah, oh, I don't know what I said. Ah, oh, I don't remember. He's going like, I don't remember. Our children and grandchildren will look back at this time, at the choices we are about to make, the goals we will strive for, the principles we will live by, and we need to make sure that they can be proud of us. I'm Hillary Clinton, and I approve this message. So CNN, MSDNC, and all of them have beat the fucking shit in the ground. I mean, it didn't really need to be paid for ad because this was played in every newscast. It was repetitive. It was nonstop. It's what they loved. They loved this fucking ad. Three massive problems with Hillary Clinton's new anti-Trump ad. A new ad features children watching Donald Trump's speeches. This tired approach fails to understand Trump's and Clinton's relationship to the public. Hillary Clinton is running a traditional campaign for president, including a huge fundraising operation that enables her to run a ton of ads negatively framing her opponent, Donald Trump. This is smart, but at the latest New York Times poll shows, voters pretty much can't stand her. The biggest thing she is going for her is that she's running against Trump, without whom she'd be in serious trouble. 
She's brought tens of millions of dollars of ad. She has bought tens of millions of dollars of ad time to air on attack attacks on Trump in Virginia, Ohio, Colorado, New Hampshire, Iowa, Florida, fucking the whole goddamn country. It will also air on national cable TV and digital ads. The Washington Post reports the paper described the ad as this. Hillary Clinton released her campaign's new attack ad against Donald Trump. A brutal minute-long reprisal of some of his most controversial statements as seen through the eyes of children. They make it sound so good. It's not that good, even at high production values. First, watch, watch the video, which we have. And here are the three major problems. One, uses children poorly. Someone needs to tell ad makers that using children in political ads is not the blessing they think it is. It immediately posits, posits the source of the ad as exploitive. And that goes double for attack ads in which messages are supposed to be that children shouldn't be exposed to something or someone. In this case, though, the problem with us with using children is that the kids don't seem unfazed by Trump's statements so much as not even plugging into them. They just stare silently without any response at the glowing screen as Trump talks. They don't understand the statements or their context enough to even remotely be harmed by them. And I want to make sure we understand, because I'm not going to read the whole article, I'm just going to read excerpts. Um, <clears throat> context. Anybody that's brain dead enough to look at an ad like that not realize the context of what he says. But what I think is the biggest problem, really, is more than context. It is the fact that he speaks like a normal American. That is his populism. That's why things like that don't phase most of us in the non-blue states. Behind the blue wall, they all cringe in their safe places because he said the word fuck. Yet I read their tweets. They say fuck, but they don't say it out loud. They don't say it in public. God, they don't say it during the speech. They say it on the Twitter feed. And that makes them better human beings. Because that's not real. Remember, it's the Internet. The Internet's not a real world. We can say whatever the fuck we want. We can be whoever we are. And these people that don't live in the real world don't understand, once again, doesn't offend you in middle America. Doesn't make you feel so hurt. But I digress. Number two, doesn't understand Trumpian communications at all. More than a year into the Trump political phenomenon and what for four decades into the Trump brand phenomenon, you really have to step up your game to fight it. Protect the little women version of this ad were run both by anti-Trump Republicans and pro-Hillary super PAC. The Republican one was a deadly serious invocation of all the terrible things Trump had said about women, but most Americans are familiar with the Trump style and even if they don't like it and I'm going to vote for that guy kind of way. They don't buy the overwrought Sally Struthers style response to it either. You may not like him, but he's entertaining. By definition, the media star is entertaining. He's funny and he's effective in communication. The Democratic version kind of overdid their response to this lack of humor in the Republican ad, however. It played jokey music in the background that seems to suggest the negative comments were not a big deal. Because they're not. And once again, context. Lastly, and more importantly, and I think the point this author was making, Hillary is a horrible role model. I'm going to say it again. Hillary is a horrible role model. If you're going to make a video, a, a political ad that says role model and show how bad your opponent is a role model, what the fuck? You're being investigated by the FBI. Twice. 
You're the only president in modern history, modern, because there were other ones back in the day. You're being investigated for criminal conduct. And by a 65% margin, this country believes you did something wrong. Talk about not having self-awareness. Perhaps deadliest is the idea that if Trump is a bad role model for our children, we should pick Hillary Clinton instead. Hillary Clinton, of all people, Hillary Clinton. It's an argument that immediately has the voters think, well, maybe Trump isn't so bad. The New York Times reports today that 67% of voters say she is not honest and trustworthy. That seems low, but you get the point. Contrasting Trump's straight-talking crassness with her words at the end of the advertisement is ineffective in an environment where more than two out of every three people think Clinton is lying when she opens her mouth. At the end of the ad to swelling music, she says, our children and grandchildren will look back at this time, and we need to make sure they can be proud of us. Even if you are a voter who is thinking about voting for Clinton, you're not going to be proud about it. Americans have to choose between two candidates who have horribly low approval ratings, and the article goes on from there and just kind of bashes everybody, but that's fine. The, the fact of the matter is, even when they try to bash him, they're doing it, and their candidate's worse. And more importantly, going back to Charles Cook's article, the reality is it, it's, it just doesn't work. It goes back to my theses that I talk about on the show all the fucking time. When you call somebody a racist over and over and over, and everything's racist, saying Chicago's racist, not liking Obamacare's racist, fucking believing that cops aren't going out every night and killing fucking African Americans for sport, you're a racist. And drink some coffee, sorry. It's really early, folks. I'm trying to stay awake. Um, but you're racist. You use everything for racist. It just doesn't work anymore. It doesn't hit the mark because it's like, okay, yeah, whatever. And we're at a point now, since 2000, 2004, 2008, 2012, 2016, Democrats keep ratcheting up the rancor. They keep ratcheting it up, and they ratchet it up, and they ratchet it up. And you're going to say, well, they're saying lock her up, Tony. Yeah, they are. She should be locked up. If she was a soldier, she should be locked up. The very people she's going to be the commander-in-chief for would be in jail. I don't see that as rancor. I see that as saying the fucking truth. She should be in jail. If the Justice Department wasn't crooked, as we're about to find out in our next segment, she would be in jail. But either way you look at it, I think the purpose of this segment, and it holds true, my friends, you can't continually allow a party to demean and deflect off their own record every election cycle. I just pray that Americans will see it for what it is. And what it is, is the same old play. It's like watching the Green Bay Packers in the 60s. I'll make a football analogy for the males out there. You knew they were going to do the sweep. You knew they were going to do the sweep. And every year, they're just doing the sweep. We need to stand up and vote against it. Because the Packers didn't win every game. Because the teams figured out what they were doing. 
And the team right now is America. If only once we need to stop rewarding conduct like the Democrats are doing right now and block the sweep. It's a whole new ball game on campus these days, and they call it PC. PC? Politically correct. And it's not just politics, it's everything. It's what you eat, it's what you wear, and it's what you say. And if you don't watch yourself, you can get in a buttload of trouble. For instance, right see these girls? Yeah. Two. No, you don't. Those are women. You call them girls and they'll pop your figs. Save the whales. Gays in the military now. Free Nelson Mandela. They freed him already. Anyway, on to our study. Harvard study on police shooting and race offers shocking conclusion. And once again, this is just buried, folks. This is from July 12th. Nobody wants to talk about it on the media because they want to go with the racist meme that all racist white cops are out hunting black people. I've already shown over and over that's not the case. There's a higher percentage of African-American and Latino cops shooting them. But this one kind of blows everything off. To the article. And I had a page lock, sorry about that. If you ever need an argument settled, once and for all, just ask a Harvard professor to conduct a study. They do it right. And to their credit, they report on the results, even when those results don't support their own agendas. Check out the bomb they've just dropped on BLM and all of the armchair pundits. Roland G. Fryer Jr. is an economics professor at Harvard. Distressed by what he was seeing in the treatment of black men like Michael Brown or Freddie Gray, Fryer commissioned a study on how the role race play in the use of lethal force by police. The the study examined more than 1,000 police shootings from 10 large police departments, California, Florida, and Texas. The results, not what Black Lives Matter would have you believe. Oh no, tell me that's not so. The study found no indication of racial bias associated with the incidents in which cops fired the guns. The study concluded that police officers who have not been attacked were more likely to shoot white suspects. This goes completely against the mythology. It also found that an equal number of blacks and whites were carrying weapons when the police shot them. It doesn't help those who claim the cops are shooting unarmed blacks more frequently. It is the most surprising results of my career, Fryer said in an interview with the New York Times. He hadn't expected to find such balance. You know, protesting is not my thing, but data is my thing, Fryer said. And the anger he'd felt at the media's portrayal of racial injustice drove him to do the study. So I decided that it was going to collect a bunch of data and try to understand what really is going on when it comes to racial differences and police use of force. Fryer's conclusions aren't the only ones challenging the racist copped narrative. The Washington Post study shooting deaths, the law enforcement officials in 2015. 494 white suspects were killed. The black, the number is almost double the number of black suspects killed, 258. While the study can't look at the motivations of individual officers in some of the more notorious incidents, it does give credence to what many cops have been saying for a long time. There's much more to these situations than race. And once again, in the study it found... African American cops and Latino cops were more involved in the shooting of black people than white people were. White cops are actually more hesitant to shoot black people because they've already seen what happens to a white cop who is accused of an unlawful killing. BLM, 
and their terrorist sympathizers, the Black Panther Party. Southern poverty law, folks. That's not me. They hunt these people down and make their fucking lives miserable. They just search them down. And then they never get a job again, whether they were right or wrong. Look at Michael Brown. The president, Justice Department, Eric Holder, the media. Did anybody go back and say, hey, we're sorry, cop. We're sorry. He did reach in the car and grab the gun. He did charge you. You're free to go back to being a cop. He can't get a job anywhere. Now, once again, I've said it numerous times on the on the podcast. There are times that I stare at these and go, okay, did you really need four rounds? Okay, I'm, I'm a human like everybody else. In the most recent shootings, I think Castillo will be found to be grabbing for his gun, but the cop didn't need, need to shoot four times. And the one I just played on the last podcast, the kid's on the ground, he's grabbing for his waistband, you're right there, you're 75 cops, somebody rush and jump on the fucker, you know, to shoot him five fucking times. And in the case in Baton Rouge, I've already stated, probably putting the gun on somebody's chest point blank and pumping five rounds is a bit excessive. I find totally different than BLM, the media, the president, the race hustling industry. Because I'm seeing white people at a higher percentage than black people being shot. And I don't see it as a race issue. I see it as an excessive force. And as I stated on the last podcast, I'm more like the young Turk over there than I am like Lester Holt from NBC. It's a training issue. In the military, we double tapped. Cops should be starting to get shot to be double tapping. Pop, pop. And they fall down. If their hands go to their side, if they drop the weapon, you no longer continue to fire. Instead, while a guy's trying to grab a gun inside Minneapolis, or Minneapolis, yeah, we pump four rounds into him. And that's just a bit excessive. It's excessive force. I think they should be charged with excessive force. I don't think it's murder. I don't think, you know, at the most it's going to be manslaughter in both cases because guys were grabbing for guns. But none of it's based on race. It's based on fear. And as I try to talk to my, my son, who's a libertarian, he doesn't line with, line with BLM because he's a white guy. He can't because BLM doesn't accept white people. Remember that. White people can't be part of your organization. You can be protest fodder and go out and hold our signs for us, but you can't actually be part of the group. We're not going to issue you a t-shirt. Um, but he's a libertarian. He, he's against all police. He thinks police are stupid, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't think it should be disbanded like the crazies that we played in the last podcast. But at the end of the day, I said it's a little bit different when you actually are on the other side. And, and my only experience can be combat. When somebody's pointing a gun at you, you do crazy shit. And eventually, I, and I didn't do it for this podcast, I'm trying to keep this podcast down to a minimum because... I've been running, you know, almost two hours in the last couple of weeks, which I can see by the listenership. We're, we're slowing down because you got to get through all the stuff. Um, I'm going to find that case where the big black activist went out and played cop for a while and had major issues discerning what to do 
in training, and he illegally killed all sorts of people. It's a great segment. Going to find it. I'll cover it for Friday Free For All. Okay, to uh, fall out over all this, uh, Prager, the New York Times and the left have blood on their hands. The white-hating and cop-hating hysteria that fueled the Dallas shooting. This is from the 12th of July. It was very appropriate that on Friday, the day after the massacre of the five Dallas police officers, the New York Times devoted nearly the whole top half of its front page to four enormous photos of the death of Philando Castillo, a black motorist killed by a Minnesota police officer. Of course, the paper was printed prior to the Dallas murders, and even the New York Times might not have so prominently featured the Minnesota killing on its front page of the Dallas murders occurred a few hours earlier. Nevertheless, it was completely appropriate. The New York Times has been in the forefront of the left's hysterical, hate-filled attacks on police officers and whites. Also appropriately, on the day of the Dallas murders, the Times published two white-hating, police-hating pieces. One was Michael Eric Dyson's, which I read, because Michael Eric Dyson's is what, boys and girls? A racist! The Dyson column is nothing more than a racist hit piece on white America. An example, for those who haven't heard that podcast. At birth, whites are given a pair of binoculars. Those binoculars are privilege. They are status, regardless of your class. So you and the trailer trash, remember, you got your fancy white people-only binoculars. In fact, the greatest privilege that exists is for white folks to get stopped by a cop and not end up dead when the encounter is over. Hmm even though the more cops are killing white people than black people. Okay, cool. Oh, cool. Cool, Dyson. Dyson wrote those words based on the police killings of two blacks last week, about which he knows nothing except the narrative of the left-wing media and what he has seen on some grainy phone videos. And not once did Professor Dyson mention that the Minnesota police officer was Latino. Why would he? That would suggest Latinos, too, are giving racist binoculars at birth. But Dyson would never say so because it is white America he loathes. Nor does he know it or perhaps even know because of his left-wing binoculars facts such as these. In 2015, of the 990 people shot by police, 93 were unarmed, 38 of them were black. Of the 505 people shot dead by police thus far in 2016, 37 were unarmed and of them, 13 were black. Mmm. Say it's not so. Given that blacks murder and rob more than whites, they commit 62% of robberies, 57% of murders, and 45% of assaults in the 75 biggest counties in the country in 2009, despite compromising about, com- comprising, excuse me, 15% of the population in these counties, an unarmed black man is less likely to be killed by police than an unarmed white. Those are facts. Those are statistics. Those are, those are the statistics the left don't want to tell you because the, the statistics they want to do is the same statistics they use for women not getting paid the same as men, even though it's because women don't work as much as men. And they're using that per capita. Per capita. They don't say per capita blacks commit an egregious amount of crime. Because if we're going to take the per capita, they're 13% of the population, but they are responsible for 62% of the robberies, 57% of the murders, and 45% of assaults. We're not hearing that per capita being used on those statistics. That's just the statistic. And by no means do I say blacks are all a bunch of animals or whatever else somebody's going to say, because every time a white person reads these statistics, he's a racist. I already got new listeners with names, and I'm wondering, 
oh wow, that's probably somebody from BLM, and they saw the Dyson is a racist headline, and now they're following me. I, I'm just reading the facts. I don't know the reasons. I don't know the reasons. I don't know the reasons of anybody's heart. I don't know the reason of what's inside your soul. Why you do what you do. But the facts show, statistically, they, they commit more of the crime in inner cities, the biggest counties, the same voter demographics the left go after. So when they're doing this political meme that all cops are white, all cops that are white are out hunting down black people, as we've heard on our podcast with Soundbites, they're not stating the fact that they're not being shot in the same numbers of whites, and they don't even represent the unarmed portion. I mean, it goes back to the, the little meme I read on the last podcast. This is all hysterics. We're doing this to get people out, so we got to demonize something. What else do we demonize? We've demonized everything there can be in the country to get people to vote, but we don't have a black candidate right now. We have an old white woman who's a lying piece of shit, who 58% of the people, including Democrats, thinks shouldn't even be president. She should be a felon right now, or charged with a felon. So we gotta, we got to come up with something. We have to get people scared to go to the polls. I mean, I'm digressing, but let's just be honest. When has, has Donald Trump said anything about African Americans? When has he said anything about Latinos, American Latinos? He's talked about illegal immigration. He's talked about immigration from people that are unscreenable for Muslim countries. We've covered it on the show. Those people from Syria can't be screened. There's no goddamn Syrian government. What are you basing your background check on? These are... Migrants, they left their country, which doesn't exist. So how do you know what their background is? How do you know if they are a terrorist, a jihadist, a very angry, disenfranchised person? Whatever classification you want to use, left. What, 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 how do we know? We don't know. But he's never said anything about American Latinos. He's never said anything about African Americans. But once again, we got to have a mean. We got to get people to the polls. So the media drops all the statistics. They go with the per capita statistics. They run with everything. Thus, me reading this article. I'll get back to it. Does Dyson, a professor of sociology, not know these statistics? Does he not know that statistically whites have more reasons to fear being murdered by a black than vice versa? If he doesn't, he shouldn't be teaching sociology. If he does, students should be aware that he is a left wing black nationalist propagandist, not a teacher. The same day the Times published Dyson's piece, it published a second anti-white, anti-cop, hate America piece by the mother of Michael Brown. The young man killed in Ferguson, Missouri. That black grand juror, and even Obama's Department of Justice found, the policeman who killed Brown was acting in self-defense after being attacked and thus justified him doing so means nothing to the New York Times. So it published the greeting mother's anti-cop hate. It's a Friday free-for-all piece. 
The blacks and whites of the left have led much of America, especially black America, to believe that cops are generally racist, that there is a systemic racism, and that whites are privileged and racist. It's all a lie that has had and will continue to have murderous consequences. America has become the least racist, multiracial, multi-ethnic country in the world history. This drives the American-hating left crazy. That's why leftists manufacture fantasies like microaggressions, non-racist statements that the left labels racist, foolishness like white privilege, and the dangerous rhetoric of BLM. Just yesterday, the New York Times published the results of a study conducted by a black Harvard professor of economics that showed that when it comes... To the most lethal form of force, police shootings, the study finds no racial bias. It is the most surprising results of my career, said Roland G. Fryer Jr., the author of the study, who is black. You know, that's the saddest thing about this. This is where the left has pushed us in their PC quest for power. You have to disclaim somebody's race. I raised my children in an environment, because remember, I may live in the South, but I was a Yankee. Well, I really wasn't a Yankee. I was from Oregon, so I don't know what the hell we're classified as. But when the kids would say, well, you know, that black kid down the road, Jimmy, I, I would say, why is he a black kid? We raised them not to see race. But we're so bad in 2016 because of the left, because they don't have another ethnic candidate to go out there. They have an old white woman that I have to say he was black to justify a study by a scientist based on facts. The left wants to ignore. Back to the article. What assumes that this Harvard professor has never read Heather McDonald or any other conservative who's been writing this for years? And we covered Heather McDonald on the show. The New York Times is a flagship publication of the left, and the rest of the left have the blood of police on their hands. And not just cops' blood, the blood of the blacks murdered because of police reticence to vigorously patrol black areas. What is known as the Ferguson effect was created entirely by the left. And that is an area that I have not covered on the show, only spoken briefly on. Not only will this tamp down people wanting to be cops, especially if you're Caucasian, but also if you're African American, also if you're Latino. Also, if you're a other, whatever classification, people aren't going to want to be cops. Because who the, who the hell wants to go be in the industry that when you do your job and defend your own life, you're going to be labeled by name with your house put out on the internet. But it's also affecting the patrolling of these officers. Now, I want everybody to go back to Baltimore, Rawlings. No justice, no peace. And every case to date on Freddie Gray with black officers, folks, majority black officers who actually executed that, not whites, but the media never really talked about that. They said it was a racist killing. Um, have been found not guilty because there's no justification to say what he did. They, they didn't do anything wrong. They didn't break any freaking rules. They didn't break his neck. It just happened because he was slamming his head against the wall, just like the story stated. But afterwards, after she gave them a certain amount of real estate to go destroy, because they need to be able to voice their opinion, and they almost burned Baltimore the fuck down, the murder rate soared in that town. 
Because cops sat in the car and said, fuck it. And that's the Ferguson effect, my friends. BLM protesters like the one we played on Fox News may want the disbanding of the cops. But the moment it's disbanded, or the moment the cops do exactly what they ask them to do, then they're racist once again because now they're letting black people die. They're not going in there and saving people's lives. And that's just funny to me. I mean, it's not funny that it's happening, but it's really funny that people who are shouting the loudest will then flip and shout right back the opposite that the cops are pieces of shit because they're not patrolling. But that's what's going to end up happening in our country. Thus me doing that dramatic reading of America 2028. That's where we're heading, boys and girls. We're going to end up in a country where police are going to say, fuck it, I'm not doing shit. They're just going to let the inner city go to shit. And we won't have one Chicago. We'll have a bunch of Chicagos. And then what the left's going to say? Now, to close the segment, and understand for those who are new listeners, the new listeners, I'm not covering this because I'm a racist white guy. I'm covering this because these are statistics you're not hearing on the media because it doesn't fit the meme of the left. And I once again want to expound upon the point that when you're listening to all this shit, when you're watching all these protests, when you're watching the coverage, I want to go back to what I said in the last podcast. Fucking research. Back when George Bush was president, everybody was an idiot if you followed what the media, Fox News, because that was the whole media, remember, and what the president told you about anything. But now we're just a bunch of goddamn sheep. We're just following whatever ABC, NBC, CBS, and CNN, who was twisting into pretzels this morning to try to cover up Trump's accusations of Hillary's foundation, and that there is no smoking gun, and these are just false accusations, because now it's, it's the first time we're hearing it in the media. Trump's the first one to bring it to the forefront. There's been a book written, but that's about it. Nobody else has covered her foundation and the shady way they were making money and simultaneously we were doing deals with country when, when she was the Secretary of State. I mean, nobody's covered it because, once again, that would be blue-on-blue crime. But you have to research for yourself. You have to go out and see the true numbers. And if per capita for crime statistics is racist, how is per capita for police shootings accepted? How? How can you accept that? And considering, as we've proven on the podcast, these statistics are just starting now, my friends. They're just starting to be studied by Harvard and all these people. And now we're finding it's more apt for a black cop or a Hispanic cop to shoot. And there's more black and Hispanic cops shooting people than white cops if their skin is black. Where's the racist cops again? Where do we get that from? Is that based on anything? I, I know. It's based on a meme. At the end of the day, as stated numerous times and expounded upon, there's racists everywhere, my friends. 
there are racist cops of all races. And there's racists in our police, our, our, our politicians. There's racists in our media. There's racists on our streets. And no, don't come back to me with that stupid, tired ass, we've got to be in the majority to have be a racist because you don't have any power. The President of the United States is an African American. That whole meme just got thrown the fuck out. He's, he's the President. Justice Department's been led by African Americans. Chief of Staff's an African American. African Americans in Congress. African Americans in There's a The freaking Black Caucus. There's plenty of African Americans out there in leadership of our countries. Just like they were in the army. There's racist everywhere. But if the first thing you're going to do is just claim racist on everything. Well, maybe you need to look at yourself. Maybe you're the fucking racist. There's always two sides of the story. When you dig deep on stories, you will find it's never anything the mainstream media is pushing on you. So, wanted to cover these just to kind of slow up. I'm going to get that uh, Michael Brown's mom's letter on the uh, Friday free-for-all and to give a little foreshadow before we head into our next segment. Poking at the media bubble, one podcast at a time. Here's Tony Reid. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. Let's fly, let's fly away. Due to Baton Rouge and Dallas, I've um, been saying the Ferguson effect a lot. I decided to change the subject, so uh, that is gone, and we're going to do our first segment, which is the Ferguson effect. It is uh, scary, the statistics that are in here. And then uh, that article by Michael Brown's mom to counter it. Um, it'll be our segment two. No change. Uh, I'm recording this Monday the 18th. I'm sitting here. In my kitchen watching Morning Joe as they brushed over Baton Rouge briefly, but they're mostly caught up in uh, the Trump convention and how they can destroy Trump and Pence before they even get off the ground. Uh, That is pretty much their whole thing. Since I just finished recording Podcast 74, no changes on Baton Rouge for this this, uh podcast. I figure if something else happens this week, there'll be a podcast uh, 76 before Friday Free For All. We'll make that podcast 77. Um, so that's that's the one I'm going to record on the road. So anyway, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, this, this first segment for me is a sad reality that we have in our country right now. Um, due to the politics that I've been talking about, the divisive politics, and because of Black Lives Matter. Um, They have pushed so hard that they are getting what they want, but I don't think they wanted what I'm about to talk about. Yeah. 
about a lucky man who made the grade. And though the news was rather sad, well, I just had to laugh. I saw the photograph. He blew his mind out in a car. He didn't notice that the lights had changed. A crowd of people stood and stared. They'd seen his face before. Nobody was really sure if he was on the house of Lord. I saw a film today, oh boy. The English army had just won the war. A crowd of people turned away. But I just had to look. Having read the book, I'd love to turn song was apropos for uh, the way our world is right now so right off the bat um the ferguson effect is the reality that has come because of all of the blm protesting the democratic politicians that have been calling for police to be gelded and the reality as a police officer for i know quite a few it's scary now um with everybody carrying a cell phone filming everything and everything you do being picked apart on national TV. Um, remember, we, we will know more about a cop who shot a black man than we'll know about the black men who have killed cops. That's, this is how we are right now. Um, they are still mentioned, Castillo, are still being mentioned in the lump sum of what we've seen lately. Even though I've already reported on the podcast, Castillo shooting uh, has already been proven to be bullshit. The lady lied on the videotape, and um, her story is definitely suspect. But if you put yourself... Sorry, i got a Rubio one more time. Sorry, i got a really dry mouth this morning. If you put yourself in a cop's position... You really have to think twice about what you're going to do, areas you're going to patrol, and whether anybody's got your back. Um, I have a good friend who is a police officer, a warrior, excuse me, a warrior god that I served with at the end of my career. Um, at that time, I had gone to war. He hadn't, but then when I... Me and him separated ways. I retired. He went to war. He saw worse than I ever saw. 
but uh, been many a night around a little campfire talking. He's a brother, and I was so compelled after the Baton Rouge shooting to, to put something on his Facebook that, you know, I'm praying for you and your brothers, and, and I got your back, and watch your damn six, because this shit's getting out of control. Um, he's in a little town outside of Atlanta, and God knows if this stuff's going to get there. Um, who knows? But it's a tough job. And then police for you know, police chiefs really have to look at, is it worth patrolling areas of my town and damping down all this crime if all I'm doing is set myself up for the DOJ to come in and take over my police department? Is it worth my time for MSNBC to push that I'm a racist uh, police department? So they're backing off. We spoke briefly on this show, and I'm not even going to cover it. Um, I'm going to talk about different cities and nationwide statistics. But Baltimore, right after that stuff with Rawlings and giving them an area to destroy and all that fucking shit, their crime rate, their murder rate went through the freaking roof. And then they start bitching about that. They're bitching about the cops being too aggressive and the cops are all racist. Hunting down black men. Still being said on our TV. But when they stop doing anything, because that's what you wanted, why aren't the police in here? They're racist because they don't want to do this. It, it, there's just an element in our country, predominantly African-American element, that just fucking hate police. So it doesn't matter what they do, they're always going to be wrong. But cueing back to my dramatic reading of America 2028... And me being over the top and just trying to mock what the mainstream media, which is so in love with Democrats, is pushing with their constant memes about Trump's America and how scary that's going to be. Um, let's be honest. It's already starting. What I alluded to is already starting in the major cities. Because cops are gelded. So as Black Lives Matter keep on protesting and the media keep saying we need to have a real discussion about this, no you don't, it's already working folks. You're getting what you want. But I once again, like I said in the lead, and don't know if this is what you wanted. The Ferguson Effect is destroying Chicago, and this is by Heather McDonald, we read a study by her, that totally refuted, it was on our Friday free-for-all, everything the media is saying. This is from July 9th. Violence in Chicago is reaching epidemic proportions. In the first five months of 2016, someone was shot every two and a half hours and someone murdered every 14 hours for a total of nearly 1,400 non-fatal shooting victims and 240 fatalities. Over Memorial Day weekend, 69 people were shot nearly one per hour, dwarfing the previous year's tally of 53 shootings over the same period. The violence is spilling over from the city gang-infested south and west sides into the downtown business district. Even Lakeshore Drive has seen drive-by shootings and robberies. A Chicago resident. I've been in Chicago all my life. It's never been this bad. Mothers and grandchildren are scared to come out on their porch. For those who listen to the podcast and stay current, that's exactly what that man said to me in Arkansas last week. People won't get up and start fighting stuff until they're uns they feel unsafe in their own home. Looks like we were both wrong. 
The growing mayhem is the result of Chicago police officers' withdrawal from proactive enforcement, making the city a dramatic example of what I've been calling the Ferguson effect. Since the fatal shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in August 2014, the conceit that American policing is lethally, racial, lethally racist has dominated the national airwaves and political discourse from the White House on down. In fact, this sentiment appears to be what fueled the slaying of five officers in Dallas after white cops shot black men in Baton Rouge in Minnesota last week. In response to this feeling, cops in minority neighborhoods in Chicago and other cities around the country are backing off pedestrian stops and public order policing. And criminals are flourishing in the resulting vacuum. Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel warned in October 2015 that officers were going fetal as shootings in the city skyrocketed. Residents of Chicago high crime areas are paying the price. Felicia Moore, a wiry middle-aged woman with tattoos on her face and the ravaged frame of a former drug addict, says the little byline that mothers and grandchildren are scared to come out on the porch. Through the end of May, shooting incidents in Chicago were up 53% over the same period in 2015, which already had, been a, had seen a significant increase over 2014. Compared with the first five months of 2014, Shooting incidents in 2016 were up 86%. Shooting in May citywide averaged nearly 13 a day, a worrisome potent for summer. Anti-police animus is nothing new in Chicago, of course. An Illinois State Representative Monique Davis told a Detroit radio station in 2013 that people in her Southside community believe that the reason so many homicide cases were solved is that it was the police who were killing young black males. Davis later refused to repudiate her statement. We can't say that is not happening. The no-snitch ethic of refusing to cooperate with cops is the biggest impediment to solving crime, according to Chicago commanders. But the Black Lives Matter narrative about endemically racist cops has made the street dynamics much worse. A detective says, from patrol to investigation, it's almost an undoable job now. If I get out of my car, the guy guys get hostile right away, and several people are taping with cell phones. Bystanders and suspects try to tamper with crime scenes and aggressively interfere with investigation. Additional offers may be needed during an arrest to keep angry onlookers away. It's very dangerous out there now, a detective tells me. In March 2016, then-Chief of Police, now Superintendent Eddie Johnson, decried what he called the string of violent attacks against the police after an off-duty officer was shot by a felon who had ordered him on the ground after robbing him. The previous week, three officers were shot during a drug investigation. This volatile policing environment now exists in urban areas across the country, but Chicago officers face two additional challenges, a new oversight regime for pedestrian stops and the fallout from an officer killing of Laquan McDonald in October 2014. In March 2015, the ACLU of Illinois accused the Chicago Police Department of engaging in racially biased stops, locally called investigatory stops, because its stop rate did not match population ratios. This by now drearily familiar and ludicrously inadequate benchmarking methodology ignores the incident of crime. In 2014, blacks in Chicago made up 79% of all known non-fatal shooting suspects, 85% of all known robbery suspects, and 77% of all known murder suspects, according to the police department's data. Did you hear those numbers? 
Whites were 1% of known non-fatal shooting suspects in 2014, 2.5 of robbery and 5 of murder suspects. The latter number composed disproportionately of domestic homicides. Whites are nearly absent, in other words, among violent street criminals, precisely whom proactive policing aims to deter. Whites are actually overstopped compared with their involvement in street crime. Despite that groundlessness of the ACLU's racial bias charges, then-police superintendent Gary McCarthy and the city's corporation council signed an agreement in August 2015 allowing the ACLU to review all future stops made by the department. The agreement also created an independent monitor for police stops. Why McCarthy agreed to put the ACLU in charges beyond us, says a homicide detective. On January 1st, 2016, the police department rolled out a new form for documenting investigatory stops developed to meet ACLU, ACLU demands. The new form, traditionally called a contact card, was two pages long and contained a whopping 70 fields of information to be filled out, including three narrative sections. The new contact card took 30 minutes to complete. Every contact card is now forwarded to the ACLU. Stops dropped nearly 90% in the first quarter of 2016. Detectives had long relied on the information contained in contact cards to solve crimes. When a 15-year-old Hadia Pendleton was killed in January 2013, days after performing with her high school band at President Obama's second inaugural, investigators identified the occupants of a getaway car through descriptions of the vehicle and previous contact cards. Now, however... Crime sleuths have nothing to go on. Criminals have been emboldened by the police disengagement. Gangbangers now realize there's no one that there are no one who will stop them, says a former high-ranking police official. And people who wouldn't have carried a gun before are now armed. A Southside officer says the solution, according to officers, is straightforward. If tomorrow we still had to fill out the new forms, but they no longer went to the ACU, stops would increase, a detective claims. But a more profound pall hangs over the department because of a shockingly unjustified police homicide and the missteps of top brass and the mayor in handling it. On the night of October 2014, the report went out over the police radio that someone was breaking into cars in a trucking yard in southwest neighborhood of Archer Heights. The vandal had threatened the 911 caller with a knife. Two officers found 17-year-old Laquan McDonald a block away. He punctured a tire on their squad car and struck its windshield with a three-inch blade. The cops trailed McDonald, who was high on PCP, for nearly a half a mile while waiting for backup units with a taser. Two additional patrol calls pulled up as McDonald strode along the middle of Pulaski Road, energetically swinging his right arm, knife in hand. One car parked behind him. Its dashboard camera recorded the subsequent events. The other car stopped about 30 yards ahead. The officer in that forward vehicle jumped out, guns pointed at McDonald, commanding him to drop the knife. Less than 10 seconds after exiting, Officer Jason Van Dyke began shooting. The shooting, hard to watch, represented a catastrophic failure of tactics and judgment. And what followed the homicide was almost as shocking. Five officers at the scene all told variants, variants of the same tale in their written reports that McDonald had been advancing towards Van Dyke, aggressively raising his knife as, it, as if to attack. None of those claims is borne out by the video. Still, a police union spokesman at the scene of the killing told reporters that McDonald had been threatening Van Dyke. The police department press release a few hours later essentially echoed that account, stating that McDonald continued to approach the officers 
after being warned. Superintendent McCarthy viewed the video the next day without retracting the department's press release, explaining later that he was too busy to try to learn what had happened. From then on out, officials made no effort to countermand the McDonald attack narrative. McCarthy immediately stripped Van Dyke of his police powers and forwarded the case to the civilian board that reviews police shootings, the Independent Police Review Authority. Chicago police officer Jason Van Dyke sits in a courtroom during his hearing in March. There's a nice picture of him in shackles. The case also went to Cook County State Attorney Office and U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI. In April, the Mayor's Corporation Counsel, Stephen Patton, attained City Council approval for a $5 million settlement with McDonald's family, conditioned on the continued non-release of the video. Later that month, Detective Bureau cleared and closed the case, astoundingly concluding that the re- that recovered in-car camera video was consistent with the account of the witness, and that Van Dyke's use of deadly force was within the bounds of CPD guidelines. By then, the Chicago press was clamoring for the video release, but it was not until November 2015 that the video came out, under a judge order. The reaction was understandably explosive. Weeks of angry po- protest denouncing alleged police racism and brutality followed. The Cook County State Attorney announced first-degree murder charges against Officer Van Dyke on the day that McDonald video was released. Mayor Emanuel fired McCarthy a week later and appointed the Police Accountability Task Force dominated by critics of the police. The task force issued a report in April claiming that the Chicago Police Department is shot through with racism. Emanuel is now genificating the city's activists. He has adopted many of the report's most sweeping recommendations, including the appointment of a costly and unnecessary inspector general for the department that will come on top of the independent monitor for investigatory stops. The replacement of the IPRA with a new entity, the Civilian Police Investigative Agency, and the creation of the Community Safety Oversight Board. All these additional layers of oversight will only complicate chain of commands and further discourage proactive policing. Allowing a fabrication about a very bad shooting to stand, especially during the current era of fevered anti-police sentiment, is guaranteed to amplify the demagoguery against police. Emanuel has praised himself for being the first Chicago mayor to acknowledge an alleged police code of silence, but he knew about the shooting, and his aides had seen the video early on. It is irresponsible for Emanuel to scapegoat McCarthy when his own administration had failed to set the record straight. The damage to the Chicago police and the policing nationally from the mishandling of the McDonald homicide is incalculable. The episode can now be invoked to confirm every false narrative about the police peddling by the Black Lives Matter movement, yet the shooting was a tragic aberration, not the norm. The vast majority of officers today observe the law and are dedicated to serving the community. What they need is more tactical training, adequate staffing and equipment, and better leadership from an ingrown, highly politically managed cadre. As for the alleged blue wall or code of silence, it's hard in any department to crack the defensively solidarity among officers who feel that they are facing the uncomprehending and often hostile world. Even now, a few of the officers I spoke with will not pass judgment on the McDonald homicide on the grounds that they were not there. Such solidarity is understandable, but commanders need to stress that when in results in distorting the truth, not only will the officer be severely punished, he is also making today's anti-cop environment all the worse. Now, folks, that is a key case that fueled Black Lives Matter, yet, you know, Obama doesn't talk about it, anybody else doesn't talk about it. But it also shows a knee-jerk 
that liberals are doing now. All this oversight and gelding of police is making things ten times worse than they were. And eventually that pendulum is going to swing back, folks. It's going to be like Baltimore. Where are the cops? Now they just let black people die. Fucking racist. But there's people out there that are listening and go, oh, that's just Chicago. That's just Chicago. Well, how about L.A.? Crime rose dramatically in Los Angeles last year. According to the Los Angeles Police Department, homicides were up 10%, shooting victims 126 aggravated assault 275 compared with 2014. Violent crime overall was up nearly 20%, property crime increased 10%. Los Angeles crime victims are not alone, however. The city's crime increase is part of a nationwide trend. Homicides are up 16% in 60 largest U.S. cities compared with 2014. Baltimore's per capita killing rate is now the highest in the history. Shootings in Cincinnati were up 30% by mid-September 2015 compared with the same period in 2014. Homicides in St. Louis were up 60%. Chicago up 17 Homicides up 15. Sacramento had the bloodiest 12 months last year since 2008 or 2008. The likeliest reason for the crime surge is what I and others call the Ferguson effect. Officers are backing off proactive policing and criminals are emboldened. The national crime increase in reverse from the first half of 2015 when violent crime dropped 5% across the country. Shootings and homicides nationwide began rising in the second half of the year, leaving 2014 violent crime tally awash. The increase con- continued through 2015 in response to Attorney General Loretta Lynch convened an emergency meeting of 100 police officers, mayors, and federal prosecutors in 2015, October 2015, to strategize about the growing violence. The likeliest reason for the crime surge is what I and others call the Ferguson effect. Officers are backing off proactive policing and criminals are emboldened. Since the police killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in August 2014, BLM protest movements and routinely labeled cops murderers and bigots. Activists and politicians denounced pedestrian stops and public order enforcement as racist. Arrests in urban neighborhoods have become dangerously fraught with bystanders cursing at officers, throwing things at them, and sometimes interfering with their lawful authority. Cops worry that if they have to use force against a resisting suspect, an incomplete cell phone video that fails to convey the suspect's resistance will put their career in jeopardy. Official spokesmen deny that policing practices have changed, but there is evidence that cops are responding to this political and street pressure by doing less of the discretionary policing that has come under such fire. An officer who works on Los Angeles' west side told me recently, the topic of Ferguson has been heavily discussed. It's had a chilling effect in terms of how line officers perceive their work and how aggressively they approach it. Veteran officers say they would now now let a lot of things slide that they would not have in the past. An officer from South Los Angeles reported, Gang members are emboldened by what is happening. They're constantly putting phones in our faces and yelling racial epitaphs. At some point, especially at night, that phone will be a gun. L.A. officers are advising one another that it's crazy to get out of their cars unless it's a 911 call, another cop said. Arrests in Los Angeles were down more than 9% in 2015, down 17% compared to 2013. Arrests decreased further in police divisions where tensions run particularly high. In the Newton Division, arrests are down 13% compared with 2014 and 28% compared to 2013. Newton was where Azell Ford was killed by Los Angeles Police Department in August 2014 after Ford tried to grab a police officer's gun. On the other side, homicides in Newton rose 80% in 2015, 
Violent crime, 25%. Shooting victims, 31%. James Comey has seconded the Ferguson effect, influenced by conversations with police chiefs and officers across the country. Officers in one big city precinct described being surrounded and taunted. The moment they got out of their cars, Comey said in a speech in October, they told me we feel like we're under siege. The chill wind blowing through American law enforcement is surely changing behavior. California Proposition 47 is probably contributing as well to the state's crime increase. That ballot measure, which went into effect in 2015, downgraded many property and drug felonies to misdemeanors. Criminals are doing a fraction of the time they once were if they are being arrested at all. But reaction to anti-cop vitriol is the biggest driver of the crime increase in Los Angeles and nationally. None of the factors usually blame for crime, poverty, income inequality, the availability of illegal guns has significantly worsened over the last years and a half. <clears throat> the one thing that has changed is a re- re- reticence, virtual discourse above the police. Clearly there's a war on the police, a cop who works in Los Angeles, most gang-infested area told me. Physically, it's perpetrated by gang members. But there's also a political war we can't win. We can't win that war. Citizens will have to. Police departments must relentlessly reinforce an officer's obligation to treat everyone with courtesy and respect. They must also drill insistently on tactics to de-escalate confrontations. Every police killing of an innocent, unarmed civilian is a stomach-churning tragedy, but the number of such police victims is a minute fraction of the people, the majority black, killed by criminals each year. Contrary to the claims of BLM, the police are the one government agency most dedicated to the proposition that black lives matter. When the police back off, it's inner-city residents who suffer the most. Unless the discourse around policing changes, more black lives will be lost to gun violence. Wall Street Journal article. FBI Director James Cody has again drawn, Comey has drawn the wrath of the White House for calling attention to the rising increase in urban areas. Homicides increased 9% in the largest 63 city in the first quarter of 2016. Non-fatal shootings were up 21%, according to Major City Chief Association survey. Those increases come on top of last year's 17% rise in homicides in the 56 biggest U.S. cities, with 10% heavily black cities showing murder spikes above 60%. I was very worried about it last fall. Comey told a May 11 news conference, and I am in many ways more worried now, he said, because the violent crime rate is going up even faster this year. Mr. Comey's sin, according to the White House, was to posit that this climbing urban violence was a result of a fallout in proactive policing. A hypothesis I first put forward in these, these pages, and it's the same author. The FBI director used the term viral video effect, but it's a distinction without a difference. There's a perception, Comey said during his news conference, that police are less likely to do the marginal additional policing that suppresses crime than getting out of your car at 2 in the morning and saying to a group of guys, what are you doing here? The reaction to Comey's hearsay was swift. White House spokesman Josh Ernest immediately accused the FBI director of being irresponsible and ultimately counterproductive by drawing conclusions based on anecdotal evidence. Comey's dressing down was the second time he has been rebuked by his bosses for connecting the crime increase to a drop in proactive policing. Last November, President Obama, 
accused Comey of trying to cherry-pick data and pursuing a political agenda after the FBI chief spoke of the chill wind blowing through American law enforcement since the Michael Brown shooting. But the, but the evidence is not looking good for those who dismiss the Ferguson effect from the president on down. The group once included Richard Rosefield, a criminologist at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, who was an early and influential critic Mr. Rosenfield has changed his mind after taking a closer look at the worsening crime statistic. The only explanation that gets the timing right is a version of the Ferguson effect. These aren't flukes or blips. This is a real increase. A study published this year in the Journal of Criminal Justice found that homicides in 12 months after Michael Brown shooting rose significantly in cities with large black populations and already high rates of violence, which is precisely what the Ferguson effect would predict. A study of gun violence in Baltimore by crime analyst J. Jeff Asher showed an inverse correlation with proactive drug arrest. When Baltimore cops virtually stopped making drug arrests last year after the rioting that followed the death of Freddie Gray while in police custody, shooting soared. In Chicago, where pedestrian stops have fallen 90%, homicides this year are up 60%. Compared with the first four and a half months of 2014, homicides in Chicago up 95%, according to to the police department. Even the liberal website Vox has grudgingly concluded that the Ferguson effect theory is narrowly correct, at least in some cities. Despite this mounting evidence, the Ferguson effect continues to be distorted by its critics and even by its recent con converts. The standard line is that it represents a peevish reaction from officers to public scrutiny and expectations of increased accountability. This ignores the violent nation nature of the BLM movement that was touched off by a spate of highly publicized deaths of young black men during encounters with police. As I know from interviewing police officers in urban areas across the country, they now encounter racially charged animus on streets as never before. Accountability is not the problem. Officers in most departments are accustomed to multiple layers of review and public oversight. The problem is the activists stoked hostility toward the police on the streets and underground criticism of law enforcement that has flowed from Obama administration and has been amplified by the media. In my 19 years in law enforcement, I haven't seen this kind of hatred toward police, a Chicago cop who works on the tough south side tells me. People want to fight you. Fuck the police. We don't have to listen, they say. A police officer in Los Angeles reports, several years ago, I could use a reasonable and justified amount of force and not be cursed or jeered at. Now our officers are getting surrounded every time they put handcuffs on someone. Resistance to arrest is up. Cops across the country say, and officers are getting injured. <clears throat> the country's political and media elites have relentlessly accused cops of bias when they, pol they police inner-city neighborhoods. Pedestrian stops and broken window policing, which targets low-level public order offenses, are denounced as racist oppression. The officers would reduce their discretionary engagements under this barrage of criticism is understandable and inevitable. Policing is political. If a powerful segment of society sends the message that proactive policing is bigoted, the cops will eventually do less of it. This is not unprofessional. Police take their cues as they should from the message society sends them about expected behavior. The only puzzle is why BLM activists and their allies in the media in Washington now criticize police for backing off of proactive policing. Isn't that what they demanded? Ultimately, 
Denial of the Ferguson effect is driven by a refusal to acknowledge the connection between proactive policing and public safety. Until the urban family is reconstituted, law-abiding citizens of high-crime neighborhoods will need the police to maintain public order in the midst of profound social breakdown. Last week in Chicago, a man on the south side who works in a bakery told me that he now sees a lot of people disrespecting police, cussing and fussing, he added. There's so much killing going on now in Chicago, it's ridiculous. The problem is not the cops, it's the people, especially this younger crowd with guns. That message needs to be heard by the activists, politicians, and media who have spent the past two years demonizing America's law enforcement. Officers must, of course, treat everyone they encounter with courtesy and respect within the confines of the law. But unless the ignorant characters of cops ends, there will be good reason for FBI Director Comey and the rest of us to worry about what the rising tide of bloodshed holds in store for U.S. cities in the summer. So that's three articles. Two written by the uh, same author, Heather McDonald. One written by the Wall Street Journal. And I think it's overwhelming now that we're at a point in our country due to politics, the race hustling industry, our president of the United States, who has pushed a narrative so hard, it's actually making it worse. You cannot dispute the facts that there are more murders in our country. You cannot dispute the facts there's more violence in our country. You cannot dispute the facts there's more cop attacks in our country. And you cannot dispute the facts that the entire BLM narrative, also the president's, is a false narrative. It's what people feel. But when you look at it objectively, take race out of it, take your politics out of it, when our urban cities have the highest rate of crime, and in our urban city we have the highest rates of minorities per capita, this once again goes back to the women only make 76 cents on the dollar bullshit. We are, you know, as the president, will demean people for cherry-picking statistics to argue with his, and I just did air quote, facts. <clears throat> this is what you get. So is this the country we want? And that's a question we have to bring up. And, and you know, I'm going to be political. I've been political since this all started, since Dallas have become very political on this issue. Because Hillary Clinton's already on your TV, and she's asking for this. South Crimes. It's time to end this practice once and for all. I will also fight to end the era of mass incarceration. We have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prison population. Many Americans behind bars right now are low-level offenders, predominantly drug users. Keeping them in prison does little to reduce crime, but it does a lot to tear families and communities apart. Right now, one out of every 28 children in America has a parent in prison. You talk about the pipeline that goes from the cradle to prison. It starts when a family is broken up for no real reason. 
And I'll tell you something else. We need to get rid of private prisons and detention centers. The power to keep people locked up should not be in the hands of unaccountable corporations. And as I said earlier today, as president, I will move to end that. Now, most of those are at the state level, so again, I want to enlist the NAACP to make that an issue. I also want us to eliminate, finally, the disparity in sentencing between crack and cocaine. It keeps our prisons full, and it unfairly impacts African Americans. We made progress on it in the last years, but not enough. And I will fight to make it easier for people who have done their time to rebuild their lives. Every year, every year, hundreds of thousands of prisoners reenter society. That's the good news. They've paid their debt. They're free. But then what happens? They look for a job. Everywhere they go, doors are shut in their faces. That starts all over again, a cycle of poverty and hopelessness that too often can lead to more crime. Earlier today, I announced that as president, I will take steps to ban the box so former presidents won't have to declare their criminal history at the very start of the hiring process. That way, they'll have a chance to be seen as more than just someone who's done time. They'll have a chance to be evaluated on their skills and their work ethic. Employers like Walmart and Target support banning the box. The box is that box you check. If you have a conviction, and right off the bat, you're not going to get that interview, you're not going to get that job test, you're going to be turned away. So even Republican governors like Chris Christie in New Jersey and Nathan Deal in Georgia are supporting banning the box. I believe, and I think America believes, in second chances. And so therefore, let's be serious about giving those who get out of prison a real second chance to see whether they can make it. Now, unfortunately, if all we do is look at criminal justice, we're going to miss the big picture. We'll miss the deep-seated social and economic inequities that divide our country. And when it comes to addressing them, there's a lot less consensus. There is a Judy, I wish I could answer that question. I have thought so much about it, and I'm not sure of all the reasons why we are uh, witnessing this kind of violence. And we've got to look at it broadly, what happened in Dallas, what's happening to other police officers in our country is absolutely outrageous. We've got to do much more to protect and respect the police. And we have to do much more to make sure that citizens in our country, particularly African-Americans, feel respected and protected by the police. Uh, I think we've got to listen to each other. We need a conversation. White people need to be listening to African-Americans about what it feels like to live with you know, fear and anxiety to be profiled, to worry about what will happen to their children when they go out to play or uh, out to, on a date or go for a drive. 
We have to listen to the fears of our police officers who get up every day and do a dangerous job, like the police in Dallas who ran toward the shooting when it broke out after a peaceful protest. I'm going to do everything I can in this campaign to try to find common ground, bring people together. And I've got some specific ideas about what we can do for criminal justice reform. We need national guidelines about the use of force, particularly lethal force. We need to work with the 18,000 police departments in our country, some of whom are real. Mo- Did you hear that? Did you hear it all? No stop and frisk type stuff, no mandatory minimums, no incarcerations, and worse than all that, she even spoke about taking away the rights of businesses to protect themselves from people who would do crimes in the workplace. I'm sorry, as a businessman, folks, we don't hire people that don't pass a background screening. The background screenings are there for a purpose, and it protects a company from having people steal from them. Especially when every day in every company across the company country, people are stealing. They're stealing all sorts of stuff. Wholesale theft rings have been caught. But she wants to take that away. And then, of course, the federal standards for use of force. Folks, federal row will be the worst thing that could ever happen to police departments. A federal row will be just like the military row of Obama, and I've said it numerous times, I'm going to say it again, just get a lot of body bags. A federal row will lead to police officers dying, which will lead to less people want to be the police officers, which will lead to more and more crime on our streets. So, purpose of this segment, once again, while the media is still pushing and Obama's still pushing and the race hustlers are still pushing for more and more and they're using all of this right now, I have just shown you it's a straw man. They're already getting what they want. Less policing, less incidents, not more. None of it's grounded in the racial bullshit that they want it to be in. And its sole purpose is to get Hillary Clinton, a very flawed candidate, elected. So I want everybody to spread the word. Every time this comes on your TV, all you have to do is say, straw man. BLM has already gotten what they wanted. Police departments are walking out of the inner city. And in 2020, if Hillary Clinton's elected... She'll be running on, we need to be a law and order candidate. We need to do mandatory minimums. We need to make our police officers do more policing because the crime rate's out of control. I don't think they're that devious that they thought that's that far out, but you can guarantee that's what she'd run on. Because at the rate we're going right now, we're just going to have lawlessness all over our country as the progressive movement keeps pushing to geld our police officers. Every story going forward, I'm going to play that soundbite of Hillary Clinton. The things she wants will get officers killed. These, Tom, are your cause heads. They find a world-threatening issue and stick with it for about a week. 
So this wraps up another rebroadcast episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share those to the family and friends and send comments by emailing foppodcast at gmail.com. Foppodcast at gmail.com. You can get this show on SoundCloud, Podcast Edit, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, and Stitcher. Remember to check out the Flyover Politic webpage at foppodcast.com. Fop podcast.com to see links to the feeds of the show links to our facebook page and email there you also see links to every episode on the episode release page and the blog on the blog page once again our super super duper next podcast october 8th big sis from colorado gonna be a fun one tune in i hope you all have a great week while we're no longer broadcasting shows there are plenty of old episodes you can dig up on soundcloud we have the 15 through the current, um, the first 14 were off a phone, and they're really horrible. That's why I never loaded them. So if you need a fix or you're bored or you're driving or whatever, just spool up an old one, and you'll still hear some pretty quality stuff, a little more humor back in the day, less bells and whistles. But they're still entertaining. I do it every once in a while when I'm super bored. So I hope you all turn in, tune in excuse me, for our October 8th Super Podcast with Big Sis. And until then, have a great rest of the week. And as always, thanks for listening.